Welcome to Tech Leaders Hub, where we interview technical managers to ask them about their winning strategies, lessons learned, and actionable advice for other leaders. I'm your host, Jakub Greitzar. Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to Tech Leaders Hub Fintech episode number two. Joining me today is Alex Czarnowski. Alex, how are you doing today? Hi, thanks. I'm very well. How about you? I'm super excited to be doing this, really. We just had a very nice conversation even leading up to this. Uh, so I'm super excited you know, to talk about fintech cybersecurity uh, today and just to give you a chance to share your knowledge with everybody watching. Well, thank you. I'm very excited, though. It's uh, not every day a chance um, to share with such a wonderful crowd uh, my experience. And uh, to make an analogy about uh, building planes without a parachute and uh, building software without uh, security in mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's part of the reason why we're here today to tell you, you know, dear watchers and listeners, especially those who are in fintech, how you can give your business a parachute, give it a, a safety layer. That's part of the conversation today. While people are still joining us, Alex, who do you hope is tuning in today? Who is going to benefit from our conversation today? Well, honestly speaking, I think uh, everyone and anyone can uh, benefit at least a bit uh, from our conversation because cybersecurity is a complex matter that actually touches uh, nowadays, thanks to digital transformation and even more thanks to COVID uh, situation, is touching basically every our daily activity. And with the introduction of uh, IoT uh, market, um, it will be the impact of cybersecurity will be even more crucial to our daily activities. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've uh, read a lot about how these internet of things devices make us even more exposed and that's cr a crucial thing to think about as well. And before we get into, you know, your background, your experience, before we get into all of that, the part that people sometimes skip when they listen to podcasts, I want to give some value from the very start. This is a bit of a ritual and a bit of a habit that we have here at Tech Leaders Hub. So, Alex, I would phrase the question like this. What is your number one tip for people involved in managing cybersecurity? Well, uh, as I said, the cybersecurity is a quite complex issue. And as time flies by, uh, the compl complexity unfortunately increases, which is a huge problem by itself. So don't try to solve um, every single problem by yourself, especially considering um, that some problems cannot be simply solved but by adding more uh, people to the process. Uh, instead, uh, try to employ all of the new technologies and uh, try to automate uh, those things that can be automated. Not everything can be automated. Uh, this, that has to be uh, said from the very beginning. And for example, there is still a plenty of room, for example, for manual penetration testing because uh, the quality of those if done by a uh, knowledgeable team uh, it's way beyond anything, um, just as any, um, even the best automatic tools nowadays uh, can deliver. And the same also applies, for example, to container security, when uh, while the hardening, the initial hardening process can be done uh, manually, 
it cannot be done manually further. You need to do it uh, using some, some kind of uh, automation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think that this can segue us right into, you know, a little bit of your background, uh, because thank you for this, first of all, and thank you for, you know, helping me deliver value up front here. Uh, but you do mention container security, and I believe there's a reason for it here. So can you tell us a little bit more, you know, on this occasion about, you know, yourself, what you're involved in right now, you know, your CEO at Defense Layers and Avid Inns. Can you tell us about what you do in both of those roles? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so um, Defense Layers is a cybersecurity startup that uh, manufactures what we call a secure containers. Uh, mm -hmm. The basic idea is uh, quite simple um, because the whole container ecosystem is missing uh, trust. And trust is a uh, base for any security uh, you can think about it. If you remove trust, especially think about two people, if you want those people to cooperate, you need some kind of both understanding and trust. Uh, the same uh, rules apply to IT systems. Um, IT systems or IT components or, for example, microservices, they need to trust in one way or another to, to each other. Um, and again, that, that brings the complexity uh, issue. So defense layers is uh, removing the, the complexity of uh, hardening, the knowledge required to harden your containers, uh, and especially also the knowledge in compliance field. And this is very special for fintechs since uh, fintech sector is not as strongly regulated, and thanks God for that, as, for example, banking so uh, sector. However, it still needs to apply to some general regulation like GDPR, for example. And on the other hand, in the long uh, run, probably most fintechs will need to, in one way or another, uh, cooperate with the banking or insurance uh, sector, for example, or payment sectors. And those sectors are pretty heavily regulated. So instead, um, the main idea behind defense layers is that instead of trying to be best at cybersecurity, why don't you just download a secure container image and be best at the link the uh, innovative service you would like to deliver uh, while not uh, being worried about security of the containers you are using to host your services or applications. I now, see. I see. Before I started Defense Layers, uh, I was uh, running and still running uh, a cybersecurity consulting company that started in '97. So that, as everyone knows, um, those were the years when dinosaurs uh, were walking on Earth uh, in IT. Yeah, I believe so, I was five back then. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, that uh, puts me into position of thinking how old I am today, but. Uh, the, <laughs> Time flies quickly, uh, yeah, but but anyway, back then, what's called today cybersecurity, we basically invented uh, most parts uh, of uh, cybersecurity market back then, because um, no, nobody was talking about cybersecurity. It was either information or IT security, and as a bleeding edge technology back then, it was either an antivirus software. It wasn't even hmm. called uh, malware. It was. There were viruses, Trojan, horses, and logic bombs. Nobody remembers uh, logic bombs anymore, for example. 
and um, firewall and encryption was uh, a bleeding edge uh, safeguard uh, in what we would call today cybersecurity. So that uh, the world has uh, evolved enormously, uh, but that's what's really interesting in cybersecurity, that uh, I know that uh, me and our teams in both companies Every day we wake up and we know there is a whole set of new challenges uh, we can pick yeah. up. And that's really great and exciting. <laughs> exciting. Some people, I bet, would think, you know, there's a whole set of challenges and that's, you know, that can be intimidating, right? Uh, there's so much to deal with, but I suppose they have companies like yours uh, that can help. You touched upon a lot here. And, and first of all, you know, I'm just very excited to, to be speaking with somebody who has so much experience in this field. For now, though... We were focusing on the idea of fintech cybersecurity. And, you know, when we were having the conversation preparing for this, you mentioned a lot of the common mistakes that fintechs make. You basically started just shooting them off one by one. So I was wondering, you know, what do you think is like the most frequent or, you know, the, the most problematic mistake that, that fintechs usually make when it comes to cybersecurity? Well, I think that it's not only typical for fintechs, but that that we can definitively see a pattern for startups. That um, yeah. a lot of startups uh, are badly allocating their budget for both compliance and cybersecurity. Uh, and again, this is the analogy. Uh, and I, with the plane, when you are building a plane, don't forget to design it the way in a way that you can install and actually later uh, mount the parachute before you take off. Uh, because it can save you your life uh, if something goes wrong up in the sky. Uh, and uh, I know why uh, a lot of, I think I know why a lot of um, uh, startups uh, are uh, not building security in from the very beginning. And the reason is that, first of all, there is a wrong perception that cybersecurity is a cost center. It's it's not. It's not any, maybe it used to be, but it's not uh, anymore. Uh, secondly, well, not everyone likes to deal with complex problems, and I, I understand that point of view. Uh, however, you need to deal it uh, with it, and you need to build a trust with your customers, users, etc. And you cannot build a trust again without uh, cybersecurity. And um, one of the root causes uh, I found myself is that. Uh, in a book called uh, Blitzscaling. There is, uh, again, an analogy uh, with a startup and built uh, building pro- and plane building process. And that analogy says that it's like uh, picking up some parts of the airplane, uh, running uh, very quickly and jumping off uh, from the cliff and trying to put uh, a working airplane from all the parts uh, you managed to grab while uh, running towards the cliff. And yeah, obviously yeah. some companies fail uh, building the, the flying plane and some uh, are able to build a, a plane that will somehow fly for better or worse. But at yeah. least we'll be able to take off. The, the, the problem is uh, that um, this perspective puts cybersecurity completely out of uh, your sight. And uh, again, I would never enter uh, a commercial plane uh, just for me, for single passenger, without any proper inspections in place and without, for example, a parachute. Uh, yeah. That's my insurance policy. 
So, um, but but that's a business strategy. So I wonder because again, the question was about you know common mistakes, and you say that some of these uh, startups or you know uh, start uh, fintechs that are just starting up, they forget about the parachute. They forget to you know make this uh, a part of their budget, or they see cybersecurity as a cost center. What would you say to those people to try to change their mind? And what would your advice be? What steps should these people take? Well, first of all, I would uh, like to mention that actually building security in is kind of obligation as long as you are processing uh, European uh, Union citizens' um, uh, personal data, because this mm. is exactly what uh, Article um, GDPR Article 25, privacy by default, privacy by design, uh, says in translation to technical and procedural uh, aspects. So, if you are skipping the cybersecurity in the first place, you are actually fa- fa- facing a fine up to 20 million uh, euros. I don't think this is a very wise strategy uh, to start a business with possible fine of that amount. I see. So um, this is the the rule number one. There is also another mistake that I I would like to discuss and address uh, right now. And there is a a huge gap right now in the market uh, for cybersecurity professionals. Uh, The reason for that is that you simply cannot teach cybersecurity within days uh, or weeks or even months. It's uh, sometimes uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it takes years. Uh, nowadays, there are a lot of different online, magical online uh, courses and tutorials that promise everyone to be a hacking expert within hours, days or weeks. Yeah, it's I've not, seen some of them. <laughs> yeah, it's not possible. You can... You can try to teach uh, basics of uh, programming or uh, system administration in probably weeks to months, but not uh, not cybersecurity because it's a mixture of many different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not that uh, easy. So do not trust uh, those uh, online courses because uh, what you will get in the end is a false sense of uh, security. And that's very bad. So yes. how, how, how can you address those two, two issues? Well, first of all, uh, remember that um, most security standards and regulation, including GDPR, that basically applies to any, any business I can think of, not just fintech sector, is based on risk analysis. And uh, the risk analysis actually can show you how you can allocate properly uh, your budget and uh, your other resources to, to manage uh, cybersecurity, at least in a way that you will get uh, proper compliance and you will not be facing any fines. And that's, I, I would say that's a pretty good starting point. I see. Um, I see. Secondly, um, there are a lot of things that can be automated and can be outsourced. So, for example, um, I guess a lot of fintechs are very uh, cloud aware and cloud friendly and they they love clouds uh cloud service providers because it's a easy uh and uh, very sometimes very cheap option to quickly start uh delivering your services the same with with cybersecurity you can simply outsource it uh and it's probably cheaper 
uh, than trying to be best at uh, everything. So, for example, um, at none of uh, companies I am managing, we years ago resigned from building our own uh, financial departments uh, because simply the cost uh, was too high comparing to the ability of outsourcing the same service. At at one point at IVTNS, when the cloud was uh, getting really secure, we also scrapped all our IT infrastructure that was on premise because managing it wasn't our core service. I see. Uh, we couldn't do that for many years because uh, the the hosting providers weren't secure enough for our customers. But when they adopted all the security standards and uh, it was um, the, the market was regulated, uh, the whole uh, situation had, had changed. So just take your chance. Uh, so what I'm kind of drawing from what you just said with regards to you know approaches to the cloud is that is it your opinion that the cloud is you know mature enough and using services like AWS for example is is a mature enough solution now in terms of security that you don't have to worry about it that much where like how seriously should I be approaching this how much can I trust those kinds of solutions well uh, it's a great question thank you for that because just a couple of days ago we've uh, finished a new white paper it's not published but will be published uh, within a couple of days about uh, common uh, misconceptions about cloud uh, security and um, the thing is that the current um, solutions or uh, the current services that are enabled between most uh, or the main uh, cloud service providers are quite secure. The, the problem is, uh, and they're sometimes even secure by default, which means you don't need to do a lot to make them more secure or to increase the security level to the level you would accept or need. The problem is, however, that usually you need to interoperate with different environments, different application services, etc. And then you need to somehow configure those uh, cloud services. And this is the weak uh, spot. So you cannot simply accept the fact that the cloud is either secure by default or insecure by default, somewhere mm -hmm. in the middle. And uh, it all depends on the on how you will configure it. And uh, there is a huge, I would say, problem right now that clouds, there is a race between uh, cloud service providers and those services are evolving very quickly. I would say sometimes too quickly, which oh. means that both the end customers and even uh, the cloud service providers sometimes don't know, doesn't know exactly what's inside. Uh, which also means that you don't have uh, proper on up or up-to-date documentation in place. And that means that you also cannot uh, just rely on documentation, for example, to do a hardening process. You need to know exactly how it works, sometimes internally. And uh, there is a great example. <clears throat> uh, for example, a lot of people tend to just asking us, 
why are we constantly returning to the problem of security of server firmwares? Mm-hmm. Since there are no firmwares anymore, since there are no physical servers, everything is in the cloud. It's all serverless now, yeah. <laughs> yes. However, under every serverless uh, environment, somewhere deep down, there is a hypervisor with a set of virtual machines and containers on top of it. And underneath, there is still a physical number of physical servers. Right. And all of those have uh, firmwares that actually define the, the core uh, and the base uh, security level of the whole infrastructure. So you cannot simply, uh, in some cases, obviously, uh, take out this uh, firmware from the complete picture of uh, cybersecurity and your risk analysis, for example. Yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a, like a hand-waving technique, you know. Oh, it's in the cloud. And not a lot of people stop to think, you know, what does that actually mean? And the cloud is also a server. It's just somewhere else. Uh, I have a follow-up question about that, but the questions coming in on LinkedIn and YouTube are the most important for me. So Marcin Zabava has a question. Let's try and address it. He's saying, Alexander, do you see a surge of interest in cybersecurity since COVID started? Do you see it evenly distributed among different kinds of companies? For example, digital versus brick and mortar companies, startups versus established businesses, etc. Well, I would say that um, as an industry, we did something very wrong for the last uh, 20 something plus years, especially in the field of education, because uh, normal people do not understand cybersecurity. The, GD- the introduction of GDPR. Uh, started to change this uh, landscape because people started to talking about start talking about uh, their privacy and um, uh, leaks of passwords and private uh, <clears throat> privacy data from uh, social networks did also help uh, in increasing uh, interest among normal mortals. However, there is still plenty to be done. So I would say that uh, obviously a lot of companies uh, uh, that had to quickly uh, switch uh, on to digital transformation, they started asking about cybersecurity. But uh, a lot of just had had to done it, and when mm-hmm. they when they've done it, um, they are <clears throat> still fighting to somehow survive in a new world and the new economy. So. Again, they probably either pushing cybersecurity right now a bit away uh, and trying to, to just move the matter further into their mm. pipeline. Yeah. Or they are ignoring or they are not aware of the of the problem. And that's uh, <clears throat> that's quite typical. We we've seen it already. Uh, well, again, not everyone remembers, but <clears throat> there was, for example, an issue of uh, uh, Millennium Bug. And everyone was scared <clears throat> that uh, the power plants uh, will shut down. Yeah, that never yeah. happened. Um, uh, however, the COVID time uh, is a bit different. And we are, I believe we are <clears throat> facing a complete uh, change, uh, change of, of the world we know. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that I think everyone can agree with that the world is now a lot more different, a lot more digital. So cybersecurity is, uh, well, at least in, in my opinion, it's it's more important than it was even just a, you know, a few years it will ago. Be or definitively, back. yeah. It's yeah. it's maybe it's not yet there, 
but it will be because again, <clears throat> it's like, um, as you know, I like different analogies. So <laughs> no way. <laughs> if you move back, let's say 50, 60 years, you will notice that most car manufacturers wouldn't install by default uh, seat belts. Uh, this was only an option uh, that you had to pay additionally. Yeah. Now yeah. today it's it's impossible uh, not only to sell a car without seat belts. It's also uh, illegal to drive a car without the seat belts. Yeah. And the same will happen with cybersecurity. So uh, those uh, companies that will ignore the problem will be gone. I see. Okay. So. Well, first of all, Martin, I hope that answers the question. Feel free to ask a follow-up. That's number one. Second, that's fascinating. So I'm thinking, if I'm reading that correctly, do you think that you know companies are right now building the you know their cars without seatbelts, so to speak? And if so, what I'm curious about exactly. is, well, if so, then what is the seatbelt then? Could you you know specifically point to you know elements within the cybersecurity infrastructure that you think are going to be obvious and default and they aren't right now? Well, uh, uh, definitely the GDPR compliance, but the true compliance, not just uh, some some simple solution uh, that says like putting a sticker we are GDPR compliant. That won't work eventually. See. Uh, and uh, this is a good starting point because actually when you are thinking about uh, GDPR compliance, uh, you are also thinking a lot about uh, different areas of cybersecurity, both how you align your processes uh, about your security policy, but also a lot about, uh, for example, software development. Because again, coming back to Article 25, privacy by default, privacy by design, if you think ab about it, it perfectly well translates into uh, both uh, DevOps and uh, DevSecOps uh, uh, processes. Because, for example, a secure development lifecycle is all about building in security into the software that you are and services that you are actually first designing. Then uh, you draw the whole architecture. And then only then you start coding. And when you are start starting to code, you also have different safeguards in place, uh, uh, either static analysis uh, of code and uh, rules for not using, for example, insecure uh, API functions. And uh, you can uh, make uh, more safe deployments or builds uh, mm -hmm. in your CI pipeline, um, so every commit, for example, may trigger not only a, a build of your application, but also a different set of uh, tests, for example. I see. That sounds like a lot of things to potentially do. And you know, what I'm hearing is, is. some of these companies should be thinking about implementing the, this secure development lifecycle. So you know, I want to make these conversations as, as actionable as we possibly can. So let's say maybe I'm hearing about it for the first time. Uh, maybe I've been hearing about it and I want to start implementing it. You showed a range of options. How do I actually, you know, in actionable terms, actual steps, where do I go to start implementing this secure development lifecycle? Well, the, the very beginning, uh, it, it really comes down to the 
I would say, to the culture of a company. And answering uh, a question I see, uh, do you think companies right now are not future-proofing their products? I would say that really depends on the company because obviously there are some that are doing it and are uh, and there are some that are not, aren't doing it. And mm-hmm. um, the world is definitely not a black and white place. Uh, it's more, again, it's more complex. So there are some organizations somewhere in between. However, assuming that uh, the the organization culture and the organization culture is that we are aware of uh, cybersecurity and we want to deal with it and we want to do something about it, uh, if assuming it's uh, in in the place, then uh, introduction of secure development lifecycle is the first step. But then obviously you need to properly uh design all all the activities within the secure development life cycle uh, and um, a lot of uh, people tend to speak about uh, education i would say that education uh, is showing us that it's not really working for last few decades at least uh, because if if it would work then we wouldn't be speaking about cybersecurity right now. Yeah. We wouldn't be... Okay, so for last more than 20 years, I'm speaking about uh, easy-to-guess static passwords. And honestly speaking, uh, I'm kind of fed up and bored uh, speaking about the same case uh, all over again. And so education isn't working because people are making completely the same mistake all over uh, and repeating it. Uh, I see. So I would say the education is important for changing the mindset and the culture, but not trying Mm -hmm. to teach everyone to be a cybersecurity expert. It won't work. Similarly, you you do not try to teach everyone to be a lawyer expert, for example. Yeah. Um, So... So I, I suppose uh, that's where the uh, sorry if I may I suppose that's where the by design part comes in right I don't have to know what a strong password looks like because when I put in a weak password when I'm you know signing up for a new account it tells me no that's not good enough try again right so that's exactly, I suppose that's part yeah. of part of being secure by design yes but but the problem is that for example if you move the same uh, rules from your passwords to the secrets you are using, for example, for application deployment, uh, in many cases, you do not have an input field that actually uh, prevents you from, uh, first of all, using a weak secret or well-known secret or default secret. And secondly, there shouldn't be any such box in the input or input field in the first place. Uh, because you shouldn't be using uh, static secrets. Instead, that they, they sh- should be uh, strongly randomized uh, and generated, uh, for example, automatically. I see. Okay, that, that's great. That's one uh, definitely one step to take to take a look at these secrets. As both of both you and I can see, we have a lot of comments uh, rolling in. I was thinking maybe we'll take a moment to address them. 
So what have we got here? Martin Zabava says, thank you, it does answer my question. But then he goes on. Uh, the only thing is that a government can easily restrict non-seatbelt cars, and that can't be easily done on a national level for the digital world. So do you imagine those kinds of regulations being prepared and agreed upon on the EU level? Uh, yes, and actually it's happening. Uh, and it happened already. Uh, GDPR is one example. The NICE directive is uh, another example. And um, uh, obviously there are some sectors regulations. If you look at the payment sector, for example, there is a PCI DSS uh, standard requirement for many years already, uh, which might seem simple uh, because it's uh, on a high level, it's only 12 uh, requirement points. Uh, but uh, if you if you read it carefully, uh, it's more than uh, 140 something requirements, sometimes okay. very specific. So uh, you simply cannot ignore it. And now, for example, you're in uh, European Union, there is a huge discussion about uh, not only critical infrastructure, but also about, for example, Internet of Things, because it's a next huge challenge. So, yes, such regulation will be, there are already in place, and coming back to GDPR, but there will be more. You can be I sure see. of that. Which, by the way, I'm not sure uh, we are going or we are heading into the right direction because the worst thing can happen from fintech perspective is to overregulate uh, the innovative market because mm -hmm. then it kills uh, the innovation. Right, right. And that can put, for example, the European Union behind other, you know, uh, yes, areas of the world. I, I see, I see. So, uh, first of all, thank you for answering. <laughs> I'm trying to keep things a little bit, you You're know, welcome. disciplined and organized here. So, coming to that in just a second. Uh, Hans, uh, or should I say Hans, uh, left a few comments. It's easy to get certificates for education, but there's a shortage of skilled people. So, you know, the standards are getting lowered. Would you, and also everyone is calling themselves a, a senior these days. I completely agree with Hans. Yeah, we, together with Hans, we, we played this game for decades. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I remember this joke about... Uh, someone sending a CV uh, and he was the creator of particular technology. And the requirement was that uh, you need to have like five plus years of experience. And uh, the author of the technology said, okay, I have only three because uh, it's uh, three years ago I've invented that uh, technology myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So sometimes uh, the, there is the, the opposite problem, but usually, yes, uh, everyone nowadays is a senior and uh, it's not just about the time, but it's also about the complexity of the of the projects uh, somebody delivered because you can be f uh, five years within cybersecurity sectors, but if you, the only thing you've done you, for example, you are proofreading um, audits or pen testing reports. Uh, obviously, you got some experience, but it's not experience we are talking about right now. 
Exactly. Yeah, years of experience is, is not everything. We had a, a similar discussion uh, within STX Next about developers and, and senior developers and whether it should be, well, we were talking about them being young in terms of age, but yeah, one of the takeaways that Lukas Kochvara, our VP of engineering, had was that it's not only about you know how many years you've been working, but also what you've been doing with those years. This brings me to an interesting question. I, I, at least I hope it's interesting. I'm going to ask <laughs> you and you're going <laughs> to judge that. Uh, some people might not want to, you know, outsource cybersecurity. I imagine some people are going to want to hire for it. And, you know, with your experience, I, I suppose you'd be a great person to ask, you know, when you hire for cybersecurity roles, uh, what advice would you offer somebody who's hiring? What should they look for? You know, what kind of criteria should they take into account, especially if they don't know, you know a lot about cybersecurity? Well, I can only share you with parts of our methodology of hiring we developed over the years. So uh, my first question is always about uh, a passion because you definitely want someone uh, who's running based on his passion for cybersecurity. Other, otherwise, uh, cybersecurity is a tough uh, and can be stressful job, uh, yeah. which means that if someone is only for the money, uh, he or she can quickly burn out and will not deliver what you are looking for. Uh, so the, I, I would say the, the passion is very, very interesting thing. Okay, so uh, let me ask it, you then, Yeah, <laughs> how do you check for that? You know, you have got a conversation with somebody, it's an hour, what questions do you ask to check if they've got the passion for it? Well, uh, there are many of different ways, I think, of evaluating if someone is passionate about something. Uh, obviously, well, the, the simple answer is you start to chat with a person. And uh, mm. you, from, from the way someone describes a particular discipline, uh, you can quickly uh, imagine if, if the person is passionate about it or, or not. Obviously, the, there is a, a pitfall because uh, uh, there are a, lo a lot of uh, people who are not as open as, for example, we are. And okay. uh, they may be very passionate, but they, they might keep it uh, more for themselves. So, right, right. But, but, but that's, I would say, again, this is kind of problem with IT, that not everyone is uh, open. Um, and secondly, you can, for example, ask a simple question. Okay, so can you tell me how many books you have read in last, let's say, two years? And what, what kind of books there were. And if some, somebody will tell you, okay, so I've read like a dozen books about cybersecurity and uh, he can actually tell you something about those books, uh, then probably he did it. And that, that again, that, that this could be a proof that uh, he's passionate uh, about something. But there are, I mean, it's up to you. There are so many different different methods. The other, the other important question we always ask uh, is uh, we prepare some kind of test and uh, we, uh, that's actually an interesting story because we, we know that some people are not working very well uh, under uh, interview conditions. Yeah. So uh, many years ago, we allowed people to take the, uh, the case we wanted them to work on as kind of homework. 
and present us with a result, let's say, within the next couple of days. Oh, until, until we had the case of a, a gentleman who actually gave this uh, homework case uh, to some of his friends and they jointly, jointly solve uh, solve the case. And uh, obviously, two, two weeks later, after we hired the, the person, we knew uh, he wasn't capable of uh, solving the case I or the, the problem he got. So we changed the procedure. And now we are giving the, the case to be solved uh, during uh, an interview. So sorry, sorry for that. But that's... Uh, that's how, yeah. how we had to address this uh, this problem. I guess you could say that that process wasn't secure, right? Well, that, again, there there isn't uh, anything one hundred percent secure. You have to optimize, and we simply or uh, or we harden the process uh, because everything is evolving constantly. Uh, the the threats and the attack classes are uh, evolving as well. So yes, yeah, so somebody attacked our uh, interview process. Uh, we we detected quickly, so you can say that our intrusion detection uh, worked pretty well, and we addressed the problem uh, immediately. Yeah, that makes me curious, actually, because you said there are you know different types of threats, and I know that this is uh, an area that's constantly evolving, more and more is happening all the time. So can you you know let our watchers and listeners know a little bit about what they probably don't know about, the types of threats, the types of attacks that are happening these days that they probably have no idea about and they should be you know, aware of. Can you give some examples here? Well, I think giving an example is a uh, wrong approach from the very beginning because it's evolving oh, so sorry quickly. sorry about that. <laughs> so anything we are talking about right now is already outdated. Uh, so I would rather shift uh, this discussion towards uh, more proactive thinking that instead of trying to address what's outdated, um, what what can we do with it? And the answer is uh, we have to be proactive in terms of cybersecurity, which means mm -hmm. that, uh, for example, hardening uh, is very important. Because instead of trying to address the attack we've learned yesterday, we're trying from the very beginning to address what's unknown by providing, for example, a multiple layers of security. And that's, that's crucial. And that allows you to actually address the issues or attack classes or different vulnerabilities or exploits as they come to your um, uh, to your network or to your application uh, and that keeps you also prepared for un uh, unknown which is very crucial in terms of uh, security right. because it's it's easy to deal with uh, what you know so for example yeah, if you think about malware it's not just about protecting from the known malware today it's actually about being protected from unknown malware that will be designed tomorrow or within next uh, week or month or year. Yeah, yeah. That, that approach makes a lot of sense uh, to me. I do have a follow-up question. I love the approach of you know preparing for the unknown because if you keep thinking about the known threats, you'll always be one step behind. That makes a lot of sense to me, but you're probably 
can guess at this point that I'm looking for steps for things that people can actually do. So how do you prepare for what you don't know that is coming your way? You mentioned something about layers of security. Could you go a little bit deeper into that so that the people watching can put some, you know, some things on their to-do list, some things that they should Google or research? Where, you know, which direction would you point them in? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, yes, the, the multi-layered security model is very important. So basically, the basic rule is that uh, you cannot rely on a si si simple and single safeguard um, in your model. Uh, instead, you need to introduce an, a layered approach, which means that you have multiple uh, safeguards. How it works in practice. So first of all, if you imagine your software stack, and uh, let's let's talk about uh, serverless uh, stack because it's quite popular nowadays and it's great sure. for microservices. So you start with securing your container or a runtime. If, for example, you are running uh, AWS infrastructure, um, Lambda uh, functions, for example, or functions in Microsoft Azure. Um, so you start securing this part. Then you move up and you have your application, uh, your databases, you, you secure that by hardening, by uh, enabling encryption, by enabling, enabling stronger access control. Again, you move up and you have your application, you have your source code, which can be uh, also both statically and dynamically tested. Uh, you can uh, run a set of um, security rules. Nowadays, uh, basically any development environment provides you some, some functionality to do static testing and banning, for example, insecure function calls or insecure cryptography. That's very mm -hmm. important. And it's changing so, so quickly because if you take, uh, again, go back uh, 10 years and look at what we were considering as a strong cryptography, you might be surprised how many algorithms and uh, their uh, version are not considered secure anymore today. So again, you, you need to remember in the whole process that something that's considered secure today probably will not be considered secure tomorrow right, or within right. next month or year. It's, it's really changing. So you, you need to repeat all those steps constantly. It's not just one uh, single job. It's a process. That's why we call it a, a process, because you, you need to repeat yeah. it constantly. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, then again, you, you move up, and then you have uh, access uh, rights for your customers, for example, that also need to be managed. Those customers need to be, they need to access your services or your application. So we are talking about strong uh, authentication and authorization, for example, multi-factor authentication. Uh, again, and this is how you introduce multiple layers of uh, security. And, uh, but it's only possible if you design the security from the very beginning, because you actually need to design all those processes and all those layers of mm -hmm. security before you starting to deploy your software. Because if you de deploy your software, your application, your service, whatever, without all those safeguards in place, it's 
sometimes next to impossible to add all those layers of security or it's very expensive or it's very time consuming. Yeah, it's like with building software in, in general. If you you know if you resolve some issues yeah. at the design stage, then it's much easier than just trying to redo the code when it's already in production. I have follow-up questions, but so do our watchers, and that is always more important to me. So let's jump into the question coming from Hans. Uh, is, I see two questions here. I wonder about the first one. You know, if you'd, we'd like you'd like us to ask for additional context, that's okay. I'm going to just read it and and you tell me if if it, you know if it's something you can address. So we've got two. First is the what is the future of AI uh, with regards to automatic response? So, and the second is are we able as a security profession in the long run to keep up with the attackers? So how would you address that? And should we ask for more info here? No, actually, let's divide it uh, to two different questions. So let's start with the with the first. First of okay. all, I think AI has a great future in uh, automating a lot of things in cybersecurity, but not only in response. And I would say that uh, re response is just one of the challenging uh, areas that should be addressed. Uh, however, Currently, AI is great because it's not so wise. Actually, it's not not that intelligent. Mm. We we yeah. say it's a, it's on the level of four year old child. So, but still, it it can be great for many things. And um, the, the other thing is that uh, what we as a programmers would call a simple switch case loop or simple if else loop. Uh, it's often called AI, and this is not not what we are talking about. We are talking right now about real AI, because yeah. if you go back um, many years uh, at the end of uh, or in the early 90s, uh, antivirus software was using something called heuristic approach, uh, which today would be called AI, uh, hmm. which is not real AI, to detect detect uh, malware, and it was pretty successful in that. So we, with even better AI, the, the real AI, we, we can de definitively use it to, to not only to detect, but to respond with some simple actions that usually would, uh, would not scale way, well uh, with just people. Secondly, uh, we can use AI for hardening and testing purposes. And th this is, again, the era when AI can scale, I believe, very well. Um, the second question, will we we'll be able to keep up with the attackers? Well, I would say that we probably aren't able uh, if you define the problem uh, in a very specific way. Uh, because, okay. for example, I would say there is... It's not possible to have a single person who would know, for example, all the malwares available right now, all the exploits or the vulnerabilities from top of his head. It's simply impossible due to the, the sheer numbers. Yeah. Uh, so from that perspective, humans are not able to keep up for probably at least a decade or even longer. Now, if we move the problem to more high level, well, I think we are still doing pretty well as humans to trying to keep up with all the uh, all the new uh, attackers. Why? Because as long as those attackers are also humans, uh, they have the same uh, limitations we have. Right. 
and yeah. uh, so this makes us uh, able to mm-hmm. to keep up that the the disproportion that there was also always more attackers than those who would defend um it's typical and again if you look at the medieval castles for example uh you could defend with uh, a lot less people uh, your perimeter just by yeah. using proper constructions uh then you need to actually attack and succeed in uh, in attack and to win win the battle if you were outside of the castle yeah so well i, I hope that will hold true for cybersecurity as security as well one thing that's on my mind that i'm a little bit worried about is that you know ai is a tool and we you, you know we're talking about using it for defense Absolutely. but it's also in the ha- hands of the attackers too, and I wonder what yeah, they're going to do. Yeah, and it's with. being uh, exploited by the attackers already to to attack. Uh, but again, uh, this is what I love about cybersecurity. It's a race, hmm. and uh, it, it, it's a race that you simply uh, cannot win the one side or the other. Cannot win in the long run. You can only yeah. win in the short runs. And then you get up the next day uh, and you have another race. And that's the beauty of cybersecurity, at least from my perspective. I was going to ask you a question about that, actually. But again, I left with the problem, with the great problem to have uh, that we have questions coming in. This is probably the last or second to last question we're going to take because we are nearing the one hour mark. And we also have some announcements and we have a code for uh, your tool, Defense Layers, uh, that you know you can use. And we want to share that with you, too. But first, a question coming in from Swavomir Matelski. It's a long one, but I'm going to read it. <laughs> can you imagine a world where the user generates strong OTP in his head. Okay, help me out here. OTP, what would that stand for here? Well, okay, so make the since the question is quite uh, quite complex, I, I make it short. Um, uh, I, I believe uh, the idea is that uh, uh, a user can uh, generate uh, um, passwords that's uh, that's not static. So uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it's one-time password. OTP stands for one-time, one-time password. password. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, I think, honestly speaking, uh, I think that in the long run, uh, we should kill all the password systems because they are flawed oh. from the very beginning. Uh, and uh, and why? Because uh, the problem is you with user experience. So why why do people love logging into their notebooks right now using other techniques like biometry? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's all about user experience, and obviously that sparked a whole set of uh, new problems because uh, many uh, many biometric readers are of poor, poor quality, so you can mm. easily reproduce, for example, uh, a touch of, or, or your, of your fingers. That's why there are more advanced biometrics methods like uh, analyzing your voice uh, and, for example, uh, a shape and location of, of, of your veins in your hand. And there are many, many more examples. But actually, I think that uh, strong OTP is something of a past because we, we as a humans, uh, you like to use your phone if you can just touch it and the phone somehow or mobile device uh, uh, decides that it's you. 
you, you don't want to enter any passwords. It's uh, it's right. wrong from the very beginning, from from right. human perspective, not from the security perspective. And now from the security perspective, anything that's uh, inconvenient, you need to remember something, you need to calculate something, you need to do something, you need to carry something with you uh, as, an, as something additional. Uh, it won't be accepted by uh, by the market and by the humans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that gives me a lot of things to follow up on, and <laughs> I wish we had a little bit more time. Well, first of all, Slavomir, uh, thank you for the question. And Very interesting question indeed. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay, so look, I have just one final question for me, just because I cannot, you know, leave this without without asking this question. I hope you can give a, an answer that's a little bit concise. I don't want to keep people too long, but I have to ask. You know, you've been talking about cybersecurity for almost an hour now here, and your enthusiasm is just—it's infectious, if I'm honest. So, where does your passion for cybersecurity come from? What's the secret here? Well, I, I, again, I think this is uh, kind of, uh, some say would say that probably it's a mental illness. <laughs> uh, but well, why do people are passionate about something? Uh, this is not my only life passion, to be, to be clear. So sure. there are plenty of other uh, great things I'm, I'm doing besides uh, cybersecurity. But... Uh, in my case, this is, uh, first of all, this is the, uh, the knowledge that every day I will have a new challenge, a new mm-hmm. race, and every day I need to learn something new. Uh, I would say those are the three pillars that, uh, that my passion stands uh, on. However, it's, okay. I would say it's very personal and uh, uh, it, really, it really comes down to a particular person. Um, I, I know a lot of people uh, says that, you know, after, for example, 40 or 50, they don't want to learn something new. I think it's uh, mm-hmm. very bad. And, um, well, it, uh, uh, living in a challenging environment uh, keeps me always awake. And uh, I've learned so many great things. Oh, and I was, thanks to cybersecurity, I was close for one week on an island with Hans. So there are a lot of advantages to that. <laughs> and that's, uh, oh my God, that's, that's an and amazing not only answer. Hans. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, not only him, that's, that's good to mention. And I know you're not just passionate about cybersecurity because you're also passionate about analogies. <laughs> Miko in the comments says another very good analogy with the castle. It put me at ease too, <laughs> I have to say. All right, we are at the one hour mark, so we should be going to, you know, to wrapping up. But well, th- thank you, first of all, for being here. Thanks, everybody, for the comments. We have a few announcements before we go. Uh, let's start with, well, with uh, the, the most important announcement. So I promised, uh, you know, in all the marketing materials, in all the event descriptions, that we're going to give people a taste of defense layers. So, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about defense layers. So let's say give us you know a, a short pitch and then uh, if you can share how people can get access to defense layers and you know try it for themselves uh, go ahead and do that yeah well um, if you would like to test our secure container images and please do obviously especially if you want to uh, take some of the complexity 
uh, and other uh, cybersecurity issues out of the way and concentrate on uh, on doing your business. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, just um, send us an email with a secret static password. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's uh, STX, uh, the, the secret, the, the secret uh, password. Send us an email to sales um, at uh, defenselayers.com and uh, we will uh, send you um, a password uh, and access uh, to our um, secure images registry. So we will be able to download and use our secure container images for next 30 days. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think from what you told me, the access is going to be assigned to the email address that sends the email. Is that yes, still true? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so make sure that you use you know an email that you like for this. Uh, that's going to that's going to work for this. Use Thank your you real email, not the false one. <laughs> yeah, don't use a ten minute mail, probably. Yeah. Uh, Okay, uh, I might as well do a, do a pitch on on our side. You know, in case you're wondering, in case you're meeting us for the, the first time, we're STX Next. We build software for companies, uh, most primarily using Python. But you know, whatever idea you have in your head, we can help. And you want to turn that into software, we can help you discover it, define it, design it, and then develop it, and then deploy it. <laughs> I, I had this in my head, this sequence. I hope I said it in the right order there. And by the way, if you liked Tech Leaders Hub, if you're a tech leader yourself, do you know drop us a line if you'd like to be our next guest. We're looking for guests who are tech leaders themselves, who would like to talk about what they're passionate about, just like Alex did here. And you know what I'm passionate about is just interviewing <laughs> interesting and smart people, uh, just like we did today. Uh, Alex, any other announcements for our audience? Anything else you'd like to mention before I click the well, end broadcast button? You can now imagine uh, what Hans had to went through having me on that island for a week. Uh, you guys had me only for one hour. So uh, thank you for keeping up with us. Uh, it was very exciting and a great pleasure, Jakub, uh, talking to you. Thank you for the invitation. Hope to repeat it uh, in some uh, future, hopefully not too distant. <laughs> and yeah. uh, stay healthy and away from the virus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that too, everyone. Stay healthy, uh, you know, get vaccinated <laughs> if, if you can. Uh, so we can all move on to a, a future that's maybe a little bit less digital <laughs> compared to right now uh, with a lot of people staying home. That's a great note to end on. Stay safe. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And I will see you next time. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. Yeah, have a great day. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tech Leaders Hub. If you want more advice that will make you a better technical leader, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Tech Leaders Hub sessions are usually streamed live, giving you the opportunity to get answers to your burning questions directly from our guests. To take part in Tech Leaders Hub Live, follow STX Next on LinkedIn and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. That's S-T-X-N-E-X-T. Last but not least, we invite you to join our community and continue the discussion on Facebook. Just search for Tech Leaders Hub and you'll find our dedicated Facebook group. Once again, thanks for listening. Really glad you could join us. Hope we'll see you in the next one.